Well, it's a delight to be back with you again uh, this week. I enjoyed being with you last week and glad to uh, be here tonight and over these next two weeks looking forward to our time together. It's good to see a few here who uh, were not here last week and some who are back and look forward to going over beginning in page four in the notes that you should have picked up our continuation in the series Positive Holiness. And for those who were not here last week particularly, and for those of you that were, but perhaps uh, it's been a long week and maybe you've forgotten, let me quickly review what we mean by positive holiness, the title of this particular series. The word holiness in Scripture means apart, separate, set apart. And what we mean by positive holiness is that our efforts at being apart from the world, separate from the world, are first positive in the sense that it involves what it is we're trying to accomplish, what it is we're trying to do first before it's negative, that is, what it is we refrain from, what it is we avoid. I said last week when I say positive and negative, I don't mean good versus bad. Positive meaning what we actively engage in negatively what we refrain from. Positive holiness means that being set apart from the world is a matter of what we're trying to accomplish, namely being like Christ and uh, pleasing him with our lives. And that in turn necessitates some things we refrain from negatively, things we do not do. And so we pointed out last week that Very often we misunderstand this notion that holiness is a positive pursuit, something we actively engage in. It's something that we're doing, and the things we don't do are simply in order to help us achieve that goal. We misunderstand that in a few ways, in our rules and in our reasons and in the way we view righteousness. And that was the first couple of pages in your your notes. And then we noted, beginning on, on page one, the necessity of of holiness, The necessity of being separate and apart from the world is because there's something wrong with the world. And so at the top of page one in your notes, I listed a number of passages that say there's something wrong with the world. Romans 12:2, And do not uh, be any longer conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So don't be fit into the world's mold. Because, as I say, there's something wrong with the world. James chapter 1 and verse 27. The Bible tells us to seek to keep ourselves from being polluted or to keep oneself from being uh, spotted by the world. James 4.4, he that would be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And then famously in 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is, but is of, of the world. And so clearly in Scripture, there's something wrong with the world. The word that's translated most often world in your New Testament is, is cosmos. It means an arrangement. And it's the, it's the anti-God arrangement, the anti-God system uh, that is the fallen, fallen world. It's embodied in the values, the fallen values that the world has, and then those are expressed in culture. And so we saw last week that worldliness is that, fallen values expressed in culture. 
And so we are called, as Christians, John chapter 17, to be, yes, in the world, physically present in the realm in which this worldliness takes place and expresses itself in the world, but not of the world. Our values, our priorities, our allegiances derive from a different source than that of the world. In the world, but not of the world. And sin has affected everything about us. Everything about each human being. Uh, Theologians call that total depravity. It doesn't mean we do all of the evil that we could possibly do, but it does say that every part of us is affected by sin. Our mind and our will and our emotion, the way we think, the choices that we make, and, and our feelings as well. And so sin has affected everything about us so we can make an idol of anything in the world. And we noted that worldliness at its heart then is idolatry. Now, since this is the way that the world works, to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, means you're going to be in the minority. You are always going to be outnumbered in terms of those who are following God, pursuing God positively to be different than the world. You will be, if you're pursuing holiness, in a minority uh, class at all times. And that's difficult for us, all of us, because we all want to fit in. None of us wants to be seen as different or weird or set apart. We want to fit in. We want our children to fit in. It's one of the great, great uh, mistakes that parents make. And trying to have their, their children fit in to conform to the crowd. In effect, what they are doing is teaching their children not to pursue, to pursue holiness. Pursuing holiness means you will always be in a minority. And it means, therefore, that it's going to require courage for you to actively engage in the pursuits, the positive pursuits of holiness. And that's why on page four in your notes, if you look at the top, This lesson is called The Courage of Holiness. And I say at the top of page four, many Christians fail to stand up for truth in their words and their actions because they fear the opinion of the world. Although there are a number of reasons for our fear, we might be exposed, we might be mistreated, the most common is that we're going to be rejected or ridiculed. The Bible calls this the fear of man, and it warns against the fear of man. Proverbs 29 and verse 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The word fear in the Bible means uh, reverence, it means awe. And so the fear of man is giving undue reverence, revering the opinion of man, humanity, more than we revere or in awe of the opinion of God. And so I say in that last sentence there, if we're not firmly convinced of the absolute rightness of our cause, then we will not have the the courage that's necessary to resist being squeezed into the world's mold, Philip's translation of Romans 12.2. In order to live against the grain of the culture, the believer has to know and believe that the world's perspective is radically distorted that it's absolutely wrong. 
And only then will you have and will I have the courage to stand as a minority apart from, set apart from, different from the value system of the world. Second paragraph, that second sentence, the values of the world are a distortion of God's original intention. And because its values are not consistent with the real world of the Creator, they cannot be lived out without disastrous consequences. Now let me just give an illustration of what I mean there. I'm saying that the world, because of the entrance of sin, going all the way back to Genesis 3, now has a distorted view of everything. And because of that, the world lives in a way inconsistent with God's original design for it and for us. And people can't consistently live with the consequences of their distorted view. So, what are the values of the world? We're going to see some of these a bit later. But one of them is certainly autonomy. Forgive the big word, but it simply means self-law, to be my own master. Auto means self, namas means law, self-rule, self-law. Nobody tells me what to do. Autonomy is a value, a worldly, a worldly value. But the truth of the matter is, the world can't live with that very value, with the consequences of their own value system. And take the area of, of ethics. What's right and wrong? In that area of what's right and wrong, can somebody live with being their own master, being their own law? And the answer to that is no. Let me, let me illustrate that for you. Cal Thomas, some of you may know that name. He's a, he's a journalist. He's also a, he's also a Christian and uh, over the years, he's had opportunity to speak on college campuses and talk about the need to have a Christian worldview in order for you to be able to, to really live in the world at all uh, if you're going to be consistent with uh, what you claim to, claim to believe. And often he's been confronted by the secular mindset that, in, that says that a Christian worldview is not necessary. He gives some examples of that. He says one time after he spoke at a college campus, he had a young man come up to him and said, look, look I'm a 3.8 grade point average political science major. And I don't need you or God or Jesus or the Bible to tell me how to live my life. And Cal Thomas says he said to this young man, you know, I perceive you're cocky. And let's suppose I believe that all cocky people should be shot. Would it be okay for me to, to pull out a gun and, and shoot you? And he said, well, no. And Cal Thomas said, why? Well, because that would be wrong. But why is it wrong? Because it's against the law. But what if I can get enough people to vote to say that it should be the law, that cocky people should be shot? And he had nothing to say. You see, they can't live with the autonomy that they value. They can't live with the consequences of that. He gives another example. He said after one of those talks, he had a... A uh, young lady uh, come and talk to him, and he said, you know, would it be okay for me, he said to her, to pull out a gun and kill you just because I don't like you? And she said, of course not. That would be wrong. And again, he went down that road and, and, asked, and asked why she didn't know the answer. He said, let's, let's put it this way. Let's suppose that my dog, we're neighbors, and my dog messes up your lawn. And you take offense to that. Would it be okay for you to shoot me because... My dog has messed up your lawn. She said, well, no, I wouldn't do that. And he says, well, well, why not? She says, because of my socialization process. He says, you're what? 
She says, my socialization process, I've been socialized, that is, I've been taught, my parents taught me, that that kind of thing would be wrong. He said, well, then let's change the illustration. Let's suppose it's your dog that messes up my lawn, and I didn't have your parents or your socialization process. Now would it be okay? And you, you can see that you can, you can do that all the time with folks who say, I'm my own law. I rule myself. I don't need any authority above me. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. I don't need Jesus. They value that. They want that, does the world. But they can't live with the consequences that go with that. And so I say, last sentence of that second paragraph, in order to, in order to make any sense of life, the world must live off of the borrowed capital of a biblical worldview. I say borrowed capital. I actually prefer the stolen capital of a biblical worldview. You see, that, that political science student, that young lady that Cal Thomas is talking to, they're living in a world that is still governed by the vestiges of, of godly values. And they benefit from that. It's the borrowed capital of a biblical worldview, but they don't understand that and they don't appreciate that. But without that, Life on earth would not even be sustainable. And so very often what you will have is unbelievers doing the right thing, but they have no basis to justify the things they do. Very often unbelievers living off the stolen capital of the biblical worldview will do the right thing, but they can't justify why it is that they, why it is that they do it. And so you need to understand that in order for you to have the courage to stand against the world. Friends, the world has nothing to offer. Its worldview is bankrupt. And if you don't understand that, and if you're not convinced of that, then you will not have the courage to stand against the grain in the minority status that is always the case for God's people. So we need to understand the third paragraph on page four. Therefore, we don't understand in order to believe, but rather, as Augustine said, I believe in order to understand. Blaise Pascal said, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Scripture says in Psalm 36, in thy light, Lord, shall we see light. What's being said there in Scripture and then by Augustine and Pascal is this. It is only when you have your eyes open by Christian faith that you see things clearly. And outside of that, then, your vision, your view of yourself, of the world, of God, of others, is radically distorted. The believer who understands and believes this will not fear the opinion of man, but rather will live in the, in the reverence and the awe of the Lord, which the Bible tells us is the beginning of knowledge. So let's make sure we understand that, what a biblical worldview is, and what the non-biblical, unchristian, secular worldview amounts to. And so that's what I want us to see on these next few pages. The importance of worldview in general. Everybody has a worldview. That is, everyone has a view of the world. That's what worldview means, just view of the world, 
a set of lenses, a set of spectacles, a set of glasses through which they see everything. Everybody has that. And the question is, do I have a set of lenses through which I can see the world as it's intended to be seen, through which I can see it clearly, or is, are those lenses distorted? The Bible teaches that the lenses of the world and those outside of Christ are always, always tainted, always distorted. But everybody has a view of the world, but most people obtain their worldview by unconsciously absorbing it from the culture rather than consciously adopting it from Scripture. And that's true of Christian people, unfortunately. Jesus said, John 17 and verse 17, Sanctify them, that is, make them holy, set them apart, by thy truth your word is truth. Apart from Scripture, and apart from immersing yourself in the teaching of Scripture and then gaining your view of the world from Scripture, the lenses that are the Word of God, apart from that, you will unconsciously absorb your values from the surrounding culture. And so identifying and mastering the components of the biblical Christian worldview will strengthen the faith of any believer, and then help us to have the courage to stand up against the grain of the culture of worldliness, detecting and refuting error. So here's a formal definition of worldview. It's a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. So that's a fancy way of saying what I said a bit ago. Your worldview is the lens, the set of lenses through which you Interpret through which you see everything. And everybody has one. The question is, is it going to be a biblical view of the world? Or is it going to be a secular, uh, non-biblical view of the world? And the consequences of the view of the world that you have are, are many. Ideas, the way we think, which comes from the, the, way, we, the way we view things, have profound consequences. Belief determines what we do determines behavior. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, you know in the Bible, heart is the, the seat of the, of, the, of the person, the inner control center of the person, his thinking and his acting and his feeling. And so out of the, the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our, our words come out of our, our hearts. Examples of this vital role of worldview can be seen in a number of areas. Let me just give you this one from the realm of political science, okay? Top of page five. I have a couple of quotations for you here, just so you can see how important it is that one have a proper view of the world and that there are consequences to having a proper view versus having an improper view. Richard Hofstadter, in his book, The American Political Tradition, top of page five, says, our founding fathers looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin, and they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel who has to be controlled. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. Private vices could be public benefits. An economically beneficent result would be providentially or naturally achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue its ends. Now, that's, that's a wordy, but here's what he's saying. He's saying that our founding fathers, with a Christian view of the world, 
set in motion a political system at the founding of our country that took into account original sin. And so they determined, for instance, in our, in our uh, free enterprise system, that because people are sinful, they will always want more. They will always be greedy. And those private vices could become public benefits. That is, if you let this person who's naturally greedy pursue that greed in a free enterprise system, you will have an economic machine. That's what capitalism is. That's why capitalism works. They understood that they needed to put a political system together that restrained as well the impulses uh, and desires for amassing power. And so a checks and balances system. The reason that America's political system is the best the world has ever seen is because it's based on a proper understanding of the nature of man. Or to put it another way, a proper a view of the world, including the nature of man. Here's another quote from Myron Magnet, The Dream and the Nightmare. He says, Ideas have real-world consequences. Human nature is not infinitely changeable, but rather has its own laws, and therefore there is a right life for man, a life in accord with our nature. It is not a given of nature that people restrain their aggression." beget and nurture their offspring in marriage, exercise foresight, calculate rationally, or work to improve their condition. The wonder is not that people don't do it. The wonder is rather that they ever do. So it makes sense to ask, how does society foster people that dependably work and marry and are capable of rational calculation? How culture takes the aggressive, egotistical, raw material of human nature each of us is born with and develops in it conscience, reason, and duty. Again, it's a mouthful, but he's saying that the way you view the nature of mankind, humanity, will make a difference in the way you think the world ought to work. If you get that wrong, you'll get it messed up. In his book, The Dream and the Nightmare, you know what the nightmare is? The 1960s. And those of you who are old enough to remember the 1960s, you know that it was based not upon restraining this egotistical raw material of human nature that he talks about. No, it's, 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 it's no restraint. Express yourself, right? And we've been living with the consequences of that false worldview ever since. Now, I simply tell you that not to give a political speech, but to just say that ideas have consequences. The way you view the world, including how you view the nature of man, has real-world consequences. Now, what are the major components, then, of a Christian worldview? Page 5. A Christian with a sanctified intellect, a set-apart intellect, a new set of lenses, can see life for what it truly is. The non-Christian mind continues to suppress the truth of the Christian worldview. And that's clearly seen in Romans 1. And I want you to see three things from Romans chapter 1 that the Bible says are true of all people. We're going to see these three things, that all people know God. And I'll explain that. That all men know God, but secondly, people do not want to know God. And as a result, thirdly from Romans chapter 1, it renders all humanity outside of Christ as fools. People know God, they don't want to know God, and therefore, humanity outside of Christ 
is foolishness. First of all, the truth is all men know God. Romans 1.21 When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Now notice I have there for you, when they knew, literally in Romans 1.21, it does not say they knew just some vague conception of God. But rather, it has the article in Greek. And it says literally, when they knew the God, the true and living God, because of sin, they glorified Him not as God. Now, how can Paul say that all men, in fact, know God? Well, he says it's because, in verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork day after day. It utters speech night after night, shows knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so every person has access to this knowledge of God, but as we're going to see, here's what they do with that knowledge. They, they hold it down. They, they suppress it. So people know God, but they suppress what it is they know about God. And that means, bottom of page five, there, there really are, is no such thing as a true philosophical atheist. There are people who claim, I don't believe in God. But there really is no such thing as somebody who who doesn't know that there's a God. They know there is. But they have to suppress that. They have to hold that that down. And as an illustration of that, have you ever talked to somebody who's claimed that they don't believe in God? And they'll say things like, well, you know, I don't believe in God because how could could a God, God allow things like wars and disasters and suffering and so on? Well, you see, that's not, a, that's not an argument against the existence of God. That's, that's, that's a matter of whether you like the God who exists and the way he does things. We didn't say you had to like him. We're just talking about does he exist at this point. And so they betray the fact that they know he exists, but they don't like the way he runs his universe, even by the arguments they use against it. That's why Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Fool in Scripture is not, and this is important, fool in Scripture is not someone who is ignorant. Ignorance simply means we don't know. We're all ignorant of some things. Most of us are ignorant of lots of things. But foolishness in Scripture is not ignorance. Foolishness is not failure to know. Foolishness is failure to apply and appropriate what we do know. And the fool has said there is no God. He knows there's a God. But he fails to appropriate that which he he does know. And so atheists say God does not exist, and God says in Scripture, atheists really don't exist. There is no such thing as someone who's a true philosophical atheist. But there are indeed, bottom of page 5, many practical atheists. That is, those who deny God by ignoring Him or making Him in their own image or concocting theories to deny His existence, a la evolution. That's why creation scientist Henry Morris was correct when he wrote a book called The Long War Against God. Evolution is about the long war against God. And people think that science has come, developed to the point that we don't need God. 
or creator as an explanation for the world that we have. I saw this cartoon uh, where a scientist challenged God to a contest. And God said, okay, uh, let's start big uh, with, with creation. And God said to this cocky scientist, you first. And so the scientist picked up some dirt and immediately God interrupted and said, no, 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 no. You've got to get your own dirt. You see, they all have to start with pre-existing materials and they have to explain, and they cannot, where those existing materials came from. Men know God. They were made to know God. They were made to know the voice of their Creator. And that's why people don't like to talk about the Scriptures. Because it has the inherent ring of the authority of their Creator. And they don't want to be reminded of that. And so the first thing you need to understand about the unbeliever and his, and his uh, opposition to a Christian worldview is that he really knows God. But secondly, he does not want to know God. I have that for you at the top of page 6. He does not want to know God. God has given truth about himself to all people, and yet because of the idolatry of sin, the truth he knows, he suppresses. And so Romans 1 again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And when it says they, they hold the truth in the King James, it's they hold down. Other translations say they suppress the truth because of their wickedness and their, their unrighteousness. Verse 28 of Romans 1 says they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. They do not, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to them. Why? Because they have adopted these lenses that are now distorted. And what God has to say now doesn't make sense to them because they don't want to know God. But no man, says Cornelius Van Til, Christian theologian and philosopher, no man can escape knowing God. It's indelibly involved in his awareness of anything whatsoever. But we're told that all men, due to the sin within them in Romans 1, always and in all relationships, seek to suppress this knowledge of God. Deep down in his mind, every man knows that he's the create creature of God and he's responsible to God. Every man at bottom knows that he's a covenant breaker. But every man acts and talks as though this were not so. And it's the one point that he cannot bear having been mentioned in his presence, says Van Til. This is why. If you try to talk to a family member who's unsaved, you try to talk to a coworker, a neighbor who's unsaved, and you try to talk about religion, spiritual matters, every one of you has probably heard this before, haven't you? Hey, I don't talk, I don't talk about religion. Now, this same person, this same coworker, might show up at work on a Monday and tell you every detail of what they did over the weekend. All sorts of gory details, all sorts of lurid details that you don't want to know. They're happy to talk about anything. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we can't talk about that. Why not? Men and women do not want to know God. I'm not much for psychobabble, but it is true and accurate to say biblically that unbelievers are really in denial as it relates 
to their knowledge of the true and living God. And so men know God. But they don't want to know God. And then, thirdly, it renders unbelievers as fools. Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And as a result, the unbeliever is reduced to defending the indefensible. I've already said that foolishness is not ignorance, but it's failing to appropriate what we have available to us. And this foolishness of mankind is best perhaps seen in the fact that men, now hear this, they have to assume God, they have to assume God in order to deny Him. I uh, saw I saw a video of a debate that took place several years ago between a, a Christian and a professing atheist. And uh, at the uh, beginning of the debate, um, the atheist asserted that he would use the laws of logic and reason to show that there is no God. And then there was a Q&A question and answer session when the Christian and atheist were able to ask each other questions. And the Christian he was debating asked him, let me ask you about these laws of logic. Are they material or immaterial? Immaterial, said the, the atheist. And the Christian said, can you see these laws of logic? The answer was, was no. And then in that same Q&A session, the atheist asked the Christian, hey, can you name me any other person or thing besides God in the universe that's immaterial? And the Christian said, yeah, the laws of logic. The very laws of logic that you've attempted to use to refute the existence of God could only exist if there is an intelligent creator. This foolishness of mankind is probably best seen in the fact that they have to assume God in order to to deny him. The very scientists who seek to disprove God's existence could not go about their work unless he created a world of order and of natural law. I can give you other illustrations of that, but you get the idea. And therefore, page 6. Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. And that phrase in Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. The Greek word that's used there, without excuse. It's one Greek word. Uh, some of you have heard this word in English before. Apologetics. If you, if you were to go to Bible college or seminary, you would, you would have a course called apologetics. And it comes from... The Greek word in your New Testament, apologia, which means a a defense. And so we have this discipline called apologetics, which means to defend the faith. So it's not to apologize, it's to defend. And that's the word that we have in Romans 1.20 when it says without excuse. It has the the prefix ah on it to negate a defense. It's literally they are without excuse. An apologia. They were without a defense. They are without an excuse. They are defenseless before God. And that's what the unbelieving worldview that denies the components of the Christian world does to the unbeliever. It renders him foolish and defenseless before the true and living God. So the conclusion on page 6, the unbeliever's view of the Creator's world is hopelessly distorted. In fact, he has no valid basis for his own beliefs. Having denied the truth of the God of the Bible, he's reduced to borrowing from the biblical worldview as a foundation for his own house of cards. And therefore, and this is the point for us, friends, 
we need not fear that the unbeliever might have it right after all. (laughs) The world, for all its sophistication, its flash and dazzle, is really just a vanity fair. You know, that's a fair with a bunch of booths, but it's all ultimately vain. Vanity fair. And it's fool's gold. And so we would be wise to heed the words of Paul in Colossians 1. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceits, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So if you're going to have the courage to be holy, you're going to have to be absolutely convinced that Christ has it right, the Bible has it right, And the world has it absolutely wrong. Now, in my remaining just few minutes, I want to cover half of our next session, beginning on page 7. And then we'll finish the latter half and move on in the notes next week. But if you look at page 7, we've seen then the necessity of holiness and, and the courage that's necessary to pursue holiness. And now, in this lesson beginning on page 7, I want us to see the means of holiness. And that means is the Word of God. Scripture. The truth of God is given in the Bible. We have seen, top of page 7, that the world of the Creator has been distorted by the fall into sin. The world God made is now used and abused for ends that are contrary to His design. The misuse of God's world is called worldliness. The world in Scripture is the cosmos, refers to the arrangement that reflects the fallen values of sinful creatures. And as such, the world takes what is good and perverts it to promote evil values. Worldliness then, now get this, is not primarily what the world does. It certainly involves that, but it's not first that. It's first and primarily what it believes and what it values. Likewise then, holiness is not first in what one does, but in what one is. As Christians, we've come to believe and value that which is diametrically opposed to the world. And therefore, our difference between us and the world is not always found in external things, like dress and language, though sometimes it is, but rather in the God-centered agenda to which we have given our allegiance. Our commitment to God is expressed in all we do, and it may sometimes be imitated by the world. But although the world may sometimes look and act like us, it never does so for the same reasons. It's simply living off the stolen, borrowed capital of our worldview. Therefore, in areas where the believer and the unbeliever are the same, it's the unbeliever using the biblical worldview. It should never involve us, friends, borrowing from the world's value system. You all get that? So we're in the world, and so, you know we got our neighbors, and they look like us, and sometimes they talk like us, and they pursue some of the same stuff as us. And it's all because they're living off the stolen capital of our worldview. It's them living off our stuff, and it should never be the other way around. Now, I've got this long quotation from this historical document in the second, second century, Letter to Diognetus. Diognetus was a detractor from Christianity. And this letter was written to Diognetus by an unknown Christian. 
to describe the Christian way of life. It's a very eloquent letter. There's nothing else. It's just worth reading and, and seeing this to see how devout Christians were separate in their allegiances and their values from the surrounding culture. So bear with me as I read this long quotation. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and they follow local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. That is, they do not kill their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, but abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. Slandered, yet they are vindicated. Cursed, yet they bless. Insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. And he then compares in this letter the relationship of the church to the world with that of the soul to the body. Page 8. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed throughout the all the members of the body and Christians throughout the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but is not of the body. Likewise, Christians dwell in the world, but not of the world. The soul, which is invisible, is confined in the body, which is visible. In the same way, Christians are recognized as being in the world, and yet their religion remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wages war against it, even though it has suffered no wrong, because it is hindered from indulging in its pleasure. So also the world hates the Christians, even though it's suffered no wrong, because they set themselves against its pleasure. The soul loves the flesh that hates it and its members, and Christians love those who hate them. The soul is enclosed in the body, but it holds the body together. And though Christians are detained in the world as if in a prison, they in fact hold the world together. <laughs> the soul which is immortal lives in a mortal dwelling. Similarly, Christians live as strangers amidst perishable things while waiting for the imperishable in heaven. Such is the important position to which God has appointed them. And I would say he has appointed us as well. Now I'd like to end our time by this exercise just to cause you now to think about the overlap between the world doing things that we do, engaging in activities that we do, but always off the borrowed, stolen capital of the biblical worldview. And I'd like you to engage in that by doing what I say in the middle of page 8. Fill in some values of our culture. And then seek to evaluate those to determine if they're worldly or godly values. 
You see, the truth is the world is sometimes going to pursue godly values, not because they're godly, but because they live off the stolen capital of the biblical world. So let's just think about a few of those. And I put one in here just to give you an idea of what I mean. Here are some cultural values in, in our culture. Our culture, I think we would all agree, values wealth. Would I be, would I be right about that? And so we, we would look at that value then, cultural value, and we would look at Scripture to see what Scripture has to say about it. Matthew 16, Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves those things that are temporary, where rust uh, doth destroy, but your treasure should be in heaven where your heart is, there where your treasure, where your treasure is, there where your heart be, be also. 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks about Pursuing wealth and the dangers with regard to that. So wealth as a value is is clearly in Scripture a worldly value. But there are other values of our culture that are godly values. And that some people, because they're living off the stolen capital of the biblical worldview, pursue. I mean, what about things like family? When you all go home tonight, you're going to go home to your neighborhoods, and I'm guessing... You're going to live, you live next door to some people who have intact families. Now, because worldliness uh, continues to devolve and a, therefore a culture continues to go downhill, that's true in America. We're seeing that happening. We have fewer and fewer. But we still, you know, the divorce rate is about 50%. That means 50% of marriages stay together. So you have families that are intact. And so there's still a decent number of people, even though they're not Christians, who value family or who value marriage. Now, does that make them godly people? The answer is no. They're living off the stolen capital of the biblical world. Or take another one. You know, when you go back home tonight, you may have neighbors who live on the dole, who are lazy, who, if they could find a job, don't want a job. But my guess is you probably have neighbors and unsafe people who go to work every day. Or to put it another way, they value work. Unbelievers who value work. Well, the Bible, that's a godly value, like family is a godly value, right? And again, that's living off, that doesn't make them godly. It means they're living off the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. But let's think about a couple more and then I'll be done. Does our culture value sensuality? <laughs> you better believe it. Is that a godly value or a worldly value? It's clearly worldly. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19. Ephesians 4.19 talks about it being a characteristic of the ungodly world to pursue with an insatiable appetite sensuality. Or as I mentioned earlier, autonomy as a value of our culture. Is that a godly value or a worldly value? Clearly a worldly value. Now my point to you in this exercise is that worldliness and godliness are all about, worldliness and holiness are all about what we value. And sometimes the world is going to value some of the same things we do, but that doesn't make them godly. It simply means they're living off the borrowed, stolen capital of our worldview. And so as we then analyze what things we should engage in as we pursue holiness, what things we should refrain from as we pursue holiness. We have to use the Word of God to evaluate the values present in our culture and ask ourselves, 
Are they godly? Are they holy? Or are they, are they worldly? Beginning next week, we're going to look at these remaining pages in this lesson and see how the Word of God is designed to help us do this, this very thing. We'll look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 together, the most famous verse in the Bible about the Bible. Let's ask God to help us. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this time to look at these very important issues. And Lord, they are taxing on our, on our brains to think about. And it's late. And folks have worked and they've worked at home and gone through their various activities. So I thank you for giving us the ability to have these moments together and have our minds focused on these important matters. Help us to tonight and, and this week to meditate upon these things, to think about what you have said in your word about the values of the world and the things that we should hold dear and give as priority and give our allegiance to. And help us to be discerning people who are able to distinguish between holy values and worldly values. And as a result of that, we're able to pursue that which is good and stay away from that which is evil. We want, Lord, to honor you and glorify you with our lives. And it is by this means of distinguishing that which is good and that which is evil, as you have told us in your word, that we become holy and thus please you. Help us to do that this week. And we ask you to grant us safety until we gather together again next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.